0: Welcome back to the Sentientism podcast, a podcast about what's real and what matters. Sentientism answers those two deep questions by committing to evidence and reason and compassion for all sentient beings. In this episode, I talk to Claudia Hirtenfelder. Claudia is a PhD candidate in geography at Queen's University in Ontario, Canada. She's the founder and the host of the Animal Turn podcast. Uh, It's a fascinating listen, so make sure you subscribe both to the Animal Turn as well as to Sentientism. That way you won't miss future episodes from either. Uh, but I'd encourage you also to make sure you go and listen to all of our back catalogs. They are uh, pretty much timeless. I'd love to know what you think. So why not write a review or give us some stars on your podcast platform? Uh, you can also find out more about sentientism at sentientism.info or just search for sentientism on any social media platform. You'd be made welcome in any of our global community groups. They're open to anyone interested, not just sentientists. Thanks for listening. hey claudia how are you
1: hey jimmy uh, it's I'm good i'm a bit nervous uh, but i'm happy to be here with you
0: me too so we can we can forget the mics and the video and just have a conversation and see how it goes thank you for making the time and, and welcome to sentientist conversations so we've talked again it's the first time we've talked in real time really but it's been good to have a few conversations on our facebook group and by twitter direct messages and obviously i've been a long time fan of The Animal Turn, your own podcast, much more professional than mine. But this series of conversations is centered around this very simple pluralistic philosophy called sentientism, which I'm trying to develop and popularize. And it centers around answering the two deepest philosophical questions and the two most interesting ones to my mind, what's real and what matters. So that's really the center of the conversation is your own personal philosophical journey in answering those two questions and where you've got to so far. And se- the idea of sentientism is that it answers both of those questions in quite a simple way. So when it comes to what's real, it takes a naturalistic approach, suggests we should use evidence and reason to mm-hmm. probabilistically, provisionally, and pr- with prudence and care and humility, be- choose what to believe. Um, and when it comes to what matters, the answer's in the name and that it's sentiocentric. It says anything that's capable of experiencing, we should grant moral consideration to. But it doesn't say any more than that. It's very... Pluralistic baseline. Mm -hmm. But I'm talking to people who both agree with that philosophy and don't. So we can see where the conversation goes. Before we get into those two Mm -hmm. questions, for people who don't know your work, how would you best introduce yourself and your focus?
1: Yeah, so probably the reason I'm here is because I'm now the host of a a podcast called The Animal Turn, which launched in the start of this year, actually in in February, and it's doing fairly well. I'm really excited. Mm. Uh, I've had an opportunity to speak to a whole host of people, and the podcast itself is centered around... I make it based on different seasons. So each season is centered around a particular theme. So season one looked at animals and the law and season two, which is currently underway. And now in hindsight, I realize I should have definitely spoken to you for this season um, is on animals and experience. And in each episode, we focus in on a specific concept related to the theme. And then I interview generally academics from a, a, a wide range of disciplines about what those concepts mean. And the intention was when you look at animal studies or anyone who's interested in animal scholarship, there's a lot out there. There's actually a lot more than maybe uh, folks realize. So just having an opportunity to get to grips with what some of these main concepts are and to see how they converge and diverge is really important for folks that are beginning maybe an animal studies journey or just interested in in animal relations. And this is kind of part of my own journey as well. Uh, So I'm a PhD student. I'm currently undergoing my PhD in geography and planning at Queen's University. University. And uh, my PhD is my first endeavor into animal studies myself. Uh, I don't have a background in animal studies. I have an eclectic array of degrees where I just follow my interests. And it brought me to doing a PhD in geography, but focused in on on animal relations. And I approached the folks at Animals and Philosophy, Politics, Law and Ethics, APPLE. They're a research group uh, here in, in Kingston and at Queen's about doing the podcast and just saying, I'm on this journey. I don't know what these words mean. I think they're important. Let's do a podcast. And they were super, like super keen. And here we are. So I'm originally, as you can hear from my accent, I'm from South Africa, but I'm definitely a, a scholar at heart. I enjoy studying, uh, but I often don't know answers. And I feel answers to things are always just beyond my grip. So I think I use academia as a way to just discipline myself a little bit. Uh, I don't know if that really gives you a sense of who I am, but...
0: Yeah, that's great. That's a great intro. Thank you. So most of the conversation centers around those two philosophical questions that I framed early on. And the one I like to start on is is what's real. So for many people, that's a story about whether they grew up in a naturalistic or an atheistic setting or a religious household, Mm -hmm. how they choose what to believe in and also whether that shifted over the course of their life so that'd be interesting to wind the clock back and understand your journey on that side of the philosophical question I guess the epistemology and
1: yeah I've I've given it some thoughts so I I definitely grew up my my household was not a religious household but we were definitely within a Christian framework not at the household level but in a country that is very much religion is everywhere it's in the school it's in saying your school prayer it's But there was no pressure to be any sort of religion. I I never felt that from a young age at all. But when I was about 16, a friend of mine invited me to join her for confirmation. And I went on a confirmation camp and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I met friends. I was very into the church. I was there every Friday night, every Sunday night. It became a really great social hub. And I think I was... I think I've always been a bit prone to thinking about the magic of things and, yeah. and being swept up in it. So even prior to joining the church at that time, I was very into star signs. Star signs were probably the most magic thing in my my world. My mother would get me a star sign book every Christmas. Uh, I'm a Leo. And I was like, yes, this is exactly who I am. Yeah. Obviously, because it just makes you sound wonderful and uh, it's written and really general broad way where anyone can relate to it and it seems like an easy way out you want to read your year ahead you want you want to have a script that tells you what you're like um yeah a lot of my like childhood and teen years were following straddling those both I believed ghosts I was very much I, I loved the fantastical I loved reading those kinds of stories but then when I was about 18 at some point I started asking questions at the church that just weren't being answered in a satisfactory way. I started getting jobs and working outside. And then I met my boyfriend, who is now my husband. And I think he started to challenge me on some of my ideas. And we started to get into some really good conversations. And then when I started to ask questions, I I started to just become increasingly unsatisfied by the the answers I was getting. Like, why do bad bad things happen if there's an all-powerful, all-knowing God? why are people dying uh, everywhere or not even just dying why are people you know being tortured and and the answer's god knows best just didn't it just wasn't enough for me it just didn't in
0: mysterious seem in serious
1: ways yeah uh, yeah god works in mysterious ways so increasingly i just i became uncomfortable but i wasn't willing to let go of the idea that there was uh, a being an all knowing someone who's looking out yeah. for us so I, I was agnostic for for the longest time and i think only Maybe about two years ago, uh, or no, maybe a few more years ago, I was like, "Nope, I think I'm definitely in the atheist camp." Recognizing that if somehow, and I think it's really important to to drive home that atheism is not anti-theist, and yeah. uh, it's not saying that I'm against the idea of a god, just that currently there's nothing that points me to thinking that there is one. But increasingly, I've got to say that I am probably gravitating towards the anti-theist in that. Yeah, if there is one, why are you being so shitty? And I know yeah. that this isn't going to make me many friends uh, right now, but yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm very respectful. I have a lot of friends who are a variety of religions and yeah, and, and I definitely think it brings people a lot of value to their lives and a lot of meaning to their lives. And I'm not in the, the camp of trying to discount that in any way, yeah. but in my own life, yeah, religion just doesn't play much of a role.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It's an interesting journey, and it's. Um, did you find the questions you were asking were more about the facts and the evidence, or were they more about the ethics and the morality as part of that system, or was it a bit of both?
1: Yeah, I don't know. Uh, to mm. to be honest, I just remember asking questions and and not being very convinced by yeah. working in mysterious ways or someone knows best. It just. And I remember having a day where I'd gone to the church with, with my husband and I was like, the pastor at the time, he was, he was really great. I, I enjoyed listening to him. He's a fantastic orator. And on that particular day, we had a different gentleman in who was giving and he was talking about like roses and damnation. And I sat in this chair next to my brand new boyfriend and I was squirming. I was yeah. embarrassed. And that kind mm-hmm. of made me think, well, why am I squirming here right now? But to answer your question, I, I, I don't know what sort of questions. I think they're both moral and reason-based. You know, I view yeah. the world around me, and I grew up in South Africa where there's a lot of, a lot of beauty and a lot of wonder, and it's an absolutely gorgeous country, mm. uh, but there are a lot of problems and issues too. And, and racism, and you see disease, and you ask questions about the things you're seeing around you, and why it affects some people and not others, which I think is an ethic, an ethical question as well. Yeah. Uh, and I just wasn't satisfied by the answers, and I guess that's reason coming in. So I think it's a bit of both.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. In my view, yeah. I agree, and I like the way you frame atheism because some people do think it's an active belief that there definitely isn't a god, and mm-hmm. some people think it is anti-theistic as well. But I agree. I think the technical definition is the one I like, which is just it's just the absence of a belief in a in deities yeah. because there's. There not evidence, and ultimately, if there was really compelling evidence, I'd change my mind. I don't see there being any likelihood of. In in an odd way, there's an infinite number of things you could choose to believe in which have no evidence. Sure. So I don't. So I don't know what how you'd even pick. <laughs> <So>
1: it, <clears throat> but I do think it is important. So as much as I might be uh, atheist, and in some respects, you know, I, I do think it's important that even though we don't believe necessarily in in a god or religion, to not frame us as being. Beyond kind of superstitious belief or, or belief that that seems beyond the realm of reason. I do think I, and this is potentially why I haven't yet claimed myself to be a sentient or sentientist. I don't know how to say the yeah. word properly. Like I've read your website and some of the core tenets, and and something that sits slightly uncomfortable with me is the extent to which reason is the the pinnacle of everything. And I do think reason is very important. I think it's how we think through problems. I think we shouldn't be sidelining reason. But I do think that as humans, we're often more driven by our emotion uh, and we're more driven by impulses to to non-reasonable belief. And I'm and I think that there that must reason tells me that must have some significance or some like it must be important for some reason that we are so we do tend towards believing in ghosts or believing in Supernatural entities or star signs or whatever it is. So, yeah, like I I think religion is just one way of believing in supernatural or magical things. And I think we believe in many supernatural magical things, but I suspect that there's a reason for it. I suspect that this, uh, and and I wouldn't want to cast that in a way that makes it sound like it's reprehensible. It does have damaging and problematic, it can lead to problems. And I'm not trying to disavow reason here and say that reason is not something we shouldn't. I'm just suspending the idea that reason is everything. Like, what what role does emotion play in thinking through things? Sometimes you might want to do something because your emotion is telling you, but reasonably you shouldn't be doing it. Uh, And I think sometimes people let their emotions lead them too much, and that can take you down a a dangerous path. But similarly, sometimes without engaging with emotion— and just being maybe too calculated or too, like, yeah. and I don't know. I don't know if any of that makes sense, but it does, it, does, it <clears throat> leaves me in just a a graze. There's
0: a, there's a danger, in the same way as I might criticise a religious or a supernatural dogma that's fixed and, you know, cannot be challenged by reason, there's a danger that a naturalistic worldview gets to a similar place as well. And that tone often comes across mm. from people who have a naturalistic or an atheistic or a scientific worldview. And it can sometimes feel like, they're saying, we have the facts, they are crystal clear. You know, we brook no resistance to them. Anything else is fluff and mm-hmm. bullshit. That's it. We have the answers. Science has the answers. Here's the list. And that's it. You Read graduate. the books. Job done. And in a way, that's the antithesis of a proper scientific or naturalistic worldview, because the mm-hmm. very power of a naturalistic worldview has, should have, it doesn't feel like this often, should have humility and doubt at its heart. That's how we get less wrong is because we're never 100% sure we're right. So outside of formal systems like maths, I think you should never be 100% sure about anything. So your beliefs should be provisional, always open to new evidence, they should be probabilistic, you could be highly confident if the evidence is really good, but you're never quite 100% confident, because as soon as you're 100% confident, you're close to new evidence.
1: I mean, Um, I agree. Like, I think objectivity is oftentimes something we should strive towards, but it's Possibly something we'll never quite achieve yeah. because we're shaped by our worlds and our social, our social situations. But similarly, I think we have to also be cognizant of how rational thought or the idea of rational thought has been used historically, right? It's not as yeah. though rational thought <clears throat> is just this neutral – So. I think reality, um, which is what we're talking about here, operates in different ways. Yes, I do think that you, there is a world and there are trees and rocks and a world out there that exists beyond my thinking of it. I 100% believe that. But I do think that as humans that are social beings that experience the world emotionally and often cast aside rational thought, what our social realities are a lot messier. And yes. then yeah. the question becomes asking about how these ways of thinking operate. So how is the idea of rational thought operationalized? And that's very different to maybe practicing rational thought. But I think it is important to just note that rational thought is not also devoid of any sort of problems, right? Yes, or at least yeah. the people who use it. Yeah. Uh, Women weren't, weren't allowed to vote for the longest time. We weren't viewed as people for the longest time because we weren't viewed as rational thinkers. The, and the same kinds of logics are being used for animals and a variety of other people. It was used as a form and a tool of colonialism and racism, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Only rational thinkers are able to... and. The, I agree with you. I think sometimes science and the idea of rational thoughts are collapsed as one. There are many ways to do science. Science is not a monolithic yeah. thing either. And at its core, I think science is curiosity and and questioning yeah. what we think is real with, like you say, humility. But I'm just cautious of how. Rational thought and the idea of rational thought being a superior way of thinking, which I tend towards believing. Yeah, I'm just cautious of how that's operationalized in in a variety of social settings.
0: I think it's it, it's super important to be cautious, and that's part of the reason I use the term evidence rather than science, is because I think there are lots of different types of evidence. So even our personal lived experience is a type of evidence. Mm-hmm. We can be skeptical of it, and we can calibrate it and triangulate it with other forms of evidence. But it's not just randomized controlled trials or stuff that goes on in a lab there are many different types of evidence but i think you're absolutely right to be skeptical if not of the concept of rationality but certainly to be deeply skeptical of our ability to be rational mm-hmm. and and many people who claim to be rational even ourselves that's just not perfect so i think you that's entirely healthy that we need to apply the skepticism that's built into naturalism actually to naturalism itself and to mm-hmm. skepticism about sources of evidence and validity evidence and skepticism about the reasoning process we go through themselves and at the same time part of that humility for me also helps because i don't think that there's a sort of naturalistic physical world and then there's a separate subjective world of social relations and so on i think those subjective world and those social relations are part of one naturalistic Universe. Mm -hmm. So all of that mess and complexity, which may ultimately even be impossible to completely understand, just because of the sheer level of complexity, is all still part of a naturalistic universe. It's just messy and breathtakingly complex, and maybe who knows beyond our ability to even understand. And and that's partly because I guess I do ultimately take quite a hard line physicalist, materialist, naturalistic view that sees even you and me as you know patterns of information processing and energy and matter. Mm-hmm. and but what that doesn't mean is it, it doesn't mean that you can understand that in a sort of cold spreadsheet based clinical way all the wonder and joy of a sense of connection and re- social relationships and the massive emotion all of those wonderful messy richnesses are all part of those patterns and those flows yeah um, and i think that in a way that's partly why i get the same i think it's the same sort of sense of awe and wonder and connectedness from a purely naturalistic understanding that many people feel from a supernatural uh, worldview. I think emotionally, those things are probably very similar, even though the, you know, the logic that leads people to those ways of thinking is different.
1: But how do you view a naturalistic um, viewpoint? Is that Luna? Hi, Luna. Yeah. Hello, Luna.
0: <laughs> Ultimately, I see myself as a biologically evolved physical entity. Mm-hmm. That is more a pattern than a physical thing. Okay. And my own sentience and my own consciousness ultimately is a class of very rich, advanced information processing that developed out of it being evolutionally useful to have an advanced model of this entity as a self in an environment. So, mm-hmm. so I guess I have a completely naturalistic, again, not 100%, but that's my belief about what I am and how I've come to be and as that information processing entity I have a particular perspective and a a viewpoint that ultimately I can never get beyond because what I'm experiencing are, are just my experiences but I do think it's very likely that as you suggested the external world exists and you exist and and you probably have a very similar sort of set of hardware and software because of our shared evolutionary history that I do that can lead us on to the, the next question about what matters and and how we can have empathy and compassion for others. So that's how I'd frame it. I'd say that, yeah, I think I am a you know pattern of information processing in a sort of physical entity structure that exists in a real world environment that's out there that we c- I can only ever imperfectly understand.
1: Okay, <laughs> cool. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, I'm still learning a lot about new phrases and concepts and hence the podcast. But yeah, I, I don't know if I would talk about myself as like an information processing unit. Like maybe that's talking a bit to the cold hearted.
0: Maybe a step too far. But
1: then maybe that's speaking a bit about how I think emotion and feeling is also part of rational thoughts and, and evidence. Like you rightfully said earlier, I think everyday experiences are a form of evidence Absolutely. and a way of knowing. This is Luna. Hi, right, Luna.
0: Can I come and say hello to Claudia?
1: <laughs> oh, look at that face! <laughs> hello.
0: <laughs> Don't drink my coffee. You're crazy enough as it is. How old is she? She's about. We think she's about two. We're not entirely sure how old she is, but. Oh, big yawn. That was a big, big
1: yawn. Mm. Good right, to on. meet you, Luna.
0: Are you going to sit there? I love maybe? the eyebrows. Yeah, she's very expressive.
1: She's mm. great. Like, uh, I've got a dogger here, Linus, and he's, uh, my roommate's busy uh, taking care of him. He's overdue for a walk. Uh, she's got him bundled up. And after this, I will take him on a snowy, icy walk. It yeah. should be fun. That's mm-hmm.
0: good. You've got a proper winter at the moment.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't talk about us as processing units even though I, I know that's true and the brain is probably one of the the most impressive not just our brain but brains in general are just really incredible processing but i think that does create a kind of disembodied way of thinking about us and i think there is something significant in recognizing the fleshiness of us and how we uh, and how significant that is For our relationships and our ways of experiencing the world. And I think just the phrasing processing, and maybe I'm harboring too much on it, but the phrasing of processing unit makes me think of a computer and and something that is possibly easily manipulated and codified. And whereas I think, like you rightfully said earlier, we're messy and our social relations are messy. And I think recognizing that's shaped by our experiences and our bodies, not just as humans, but as any living being, that, leads us to possibly messier answers and yeah whereas a processing unit makes me think okay we're ones and zeros yeah. and we'll end <laughs> up with ones and zeros and it's not that it's not that neat it's not that simple but yeah I, I think embracing the biology and embracing and this has been something i've actually got to say i've i've struggled and i've oscillated a bit between even thinking about reality i'd, I'd often think I tend towards a, a postmodern or a posthuman way of thinking about what is reality. Our reality is very much shaped by our world experiences. You and I could walk past the same person doing something on the side of the street, and you interpret it as nothing. and I for some reason think something completely different, that this person had a gun hidden under there. Yeah. What about our world experiences and our social worlds made us react to exactly the same? information, exactly the same environment in a very different way, that means that we've got fundamentally different lived realities, yes. even though the physical world and what we've been walking past was identical. So like, I, I don't know, and I know there are philosophers and people out there with much better uh, grasp on it, but it's wow. something I've contended with, that that tension that there is something there, but still what our lived reality and our lived experience of it is, that's really significant and important.
0: Yeah, I agree. And the way I resolve it, and I don't know if this is satisfying, I think some people deny it and they do go down the sort of more computational, pure rationality, a scientific way mm. of thinking. They try and deny the lived experience and, those, and, and the variety of experience and the richness and the messiness. I think other people are so drawn into it that they think it's something separate from physical reality. Yeah. So so that draws people back to some sort of spirituality or even in a naturistic sense, a sense that you know, we are our perspectives are so isolated from each other that they are completely and utterly distinct and we almost Mm. do not share the same reality at all. And I think that's going too far. So yeah. So the resolution for me, and, and you're right, the terminology I use is probably not doesn't set the right Tone. <laughs> no, no, but it's, it's it, but it is important because you're right. You're talking about a processing unit. Doesn't really give the mm. sense of written rich, richness and wonder that I think is entirely appropriate. So I almost try and take that the distinctiveness of individual perspectives and lived experiences, and the richness of and the wonder of sort of societal connections and contexts and differences, and a lot of that that postmodern style analysis about. Power balances and negotiations, and and the sub- subjective perspectives, and how distinctive those can be. But I'd like to try and bring that into a naturalistic worldview and say all of those perspectives and that richness and that complexity is still part of our physical world that does actually objectively exist. So those subjective perspectives are still objectively real because the way your brain operates and the mm-hmm. perceptions you have are going to be different from the way my brain operates and the perceptions I have because. We've got different lived experiences. We've had a different path. Yeah. From them. But at the same time, because I do think we share one reality, I mean, I'm not 100% sure, maybe we're all living in a sim- our own simulations, yeah. but, but because I do think we share one physical reality and because I do think we have a substantial evolutionary commonality that means that, again, this is using the wrong terminology, your hardware and my hardware and our software has quite a lot in common, you know, mm-hmm. but given we're both humans that means while we'll never i say never but while it's highly unlikely we'd ever be able to perfectly understand the perspectives of our that we can certainly get good enough to be able to cooperate work together and mm-hmm. to understand each other we're not our own sort of sol- solipsistic islands so i don't know if that's yeah. satisfying but i try and bring all that richness and wonder and complexity in, but still base it in a natural a naturalistic yeah,
1: I- I agree. I don't think we exist beyond the world, beyond our biology, beyond our lived experiences are shaped by our geography, the families we're born into, where we are and what we're made up of also very much shape how we experience the world. I just think that I wouldn't tend towards saying that there's an answer as much Mm. as, or even, and and I've always struggled with the term objectivity because I think that it belies who is saying what is objective and, and who produces knowledge is also a part of these power dynamics. But I do view objectivity as a spectrum, right? You can tend yes, yeah. more towards objectivity. You can tend towards trying to fill in more of a partial picture. If we just acknowledge that our knowledge is partial and that it will never be fully, like imagine you've got never a cake 100%. tin. Exactly. You've got a cake tin and that cake tin will never be fully full of cake. It's a sad truth, but it's, it sucks. You will never have all of the cake. But you can do your best to fill that cake with as much varied knowledge as possible, that cake tin at least. And I've been doing a lot of baking. It's that time of year. <laughs> but, And I think the word objectivity sometimes gives the impression that there is a single answer, a single yes. way. And, and earlier on, for example, you even mentioned maths. And you said there, is, there are some ways of knowing that are just maybe closer to that realm of objectivity. But even there, I would say that there is still room for we had a couch surfer stay with us last year, and he's a theoretical mathematician. And I'm not great at maths. I've never been great at maths. But speaking to him about maths was like speaking to a philosopher, He his excitement and his interest. And then he would explain to me how they start with a problem. Here's an equation. We don't know how we got to this equation. Figure it out. And what his job is to now... Work on it and figure out how do we get to that answer, which I view very similar as what I do as a social scientist, where I see, okay, this is an everyday thing, pattern that we see happening. You know, the, what I work on in my, my thesis is trying to understand how some animals came to be removed from cities. It's quite clear that cows are no longer part of many North American urban centers, but yeah. they once were. So this is a pattern. And my job now is to work towards understanding how that pattern came to be. Same as a theoretical mathematician, but we give a very different sense of validity to what his answer might be and what my answer might be because there are different variables involved, rightfully. But I do think that while his answer can tend closer towards objectivity, and and mine maybe not as close, I don't think that this now disavows the quality of that type of knowledge.
0: Mm. It's
1: not to say that his knowledge is better or superior,
0: but that's, I agree because I think partly the only way you can get to something that is more objectively true is by defining a system of thought where that's already baked in which by definition yeah. also makes it less relevant to the real to the mess of the real world.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And this is what like lab science does and and this is one of the reasons why you know researching animals in laboratories is often viewed as problematic because you're putting them in artificial scenarios, trying to understand how they experience the world in a way in which they don't really experience the world, uh, or putting them up against ways of human intelligence and ways of knowing and expecting them to perform to the same way. But I do want to say that it, with this conversation, I'm also cautious and raising a flag on the other end of, this is what I do. Unfortunately, my friends hate it. I just, I'm just like, wait, be careful. And I know it's really annoying. But at the same time, I realize that this whole post-factual world and not giving credence to expertise is also a problem that as much as experiences need to be valued and no experiences, uh, I don't think that we should be in the business of trying to cut experiences or, or diminutize experiences. But at the same time, I think that we should create space for understanding people who have dedicated time and effort and energy towards becoming experts um, or generating an expertise in a particular realm and recognizing that explanations from all people are not necessarily equal. Yeah. Um, and so I th- I'm trying to like hold those two in tension, recognizing that the idea of objectivity and the idea of all knowledge, some being seen as more superior and less superior is problematic and can be problematic, but at the same time recognizing that holding all knowledge as being wholly equal on all things is also not the way forward. I think we have to see that we're all finite beings in a finite space. And over the course of my lifetime, what I could become an expert in and what you could become an expert in and where we focus our attention is significant. So what yeah. we would be able to be I, I don't know if I'm I don't know if that's making any sort of sense, but I do think it is. Yeah. Because,
0: because I think there's, we're almost talking about two potential mistakes. One mistake is pretending or acting as though you're you have perfect knowledge,
1: mm.
0: and the search is over, and that's the end, and there's perfect objectivity, and that's the answer. The other mistake is just to give up completely and say yeah. anyone's opinion is as valid as anybody else's. Someone could, I can bump into someone on the street, and they can tell me some complete bullshit, and it's just as valid as my own experience or my own understanding or my own knowledge. And I think both of those are mistakes. And I, maybe in different ways, but I think we're trying to find a middle ground, which is is about that humility ultimately. It's Mm. saying we can develop knowledge and we can build it and we can improve it. There is better and worse evidence. There's better and worse reasoning. There's emotional thinking, intuition. There's all sorts of different things going on and it's messy and it's complex. Mm. But there is still value and we have an ability to develop a shared understanding of reality and our own individual perspectives on reality but it needs to be prudent and provisional and probabilistic and always will be and always should be and as soon as we either give up completely or think we have the perfect answers we've probably taken a wrong turn so I think there is something about that middle ground that yeah. doesn't give up it doesn't pretend it's perfect but you know it's a, it's a never-ending journey of sort of exploration and understanding and deepening of individual perspectives, I know. You know, hopefully, shared perspectives as well.
1: Thank you. You say that a lot more succinctly, succinctly <laughs> than I did. Um.
0: Well, and, and, but that's—I I, would—I could talk about that stuff for ages. Mm. But I think you've already hinted at how it links to our second deep question, which is what matters in that context. So, if for for some people who've got a very supernatural or a, a religious worldview, the morality is laid down for them because normally the deity is an instantiation of what mm-hmm. is good and bad. Quite often there are rules to follow, you know, which are often interpreted in many and various ways. But there's a sort of moral system of sorts there, and as you've hinted at already, there's a lot of real good there. There's often genuine, deep, rich compassion, care for the other. Most religions have some form of the golden rule, and there is, you know, an expression of concern for others. Um, there's power and richness in the community, and the sense of meaning that people get from those things as well. But at the same time, as, again, you've mentioned, there can be real challenges that, mm-hmm. as with you, sometimes make me feel a little bit more anti-theistic than I really want to be because I genuinely believe people should be you know, able to believe what they like, you know, have mm-hmm. a crazy... The, the challenge is when those beliefs are used to cause harm to others and often we see that come through either because I think as soon as you believe in something being more important than the suffering and the experience of sentient beings you tend to cause a lot of suffering and death in the pursuit of whether it's a God or a church or even a one nation state or an autocratic leader. As soon as there's something that's elevated above the experience and life and death of sentient beings, but also just because there are some weird ethics that flow through some of those systems and the way they've been interpreted, whether it's threatening small children with being tortured in hell for hell forever, or mm-hmm. rule and unusual punishments or restrictions. It's good and bad, of course, in any ethical system. But one reason some people feel hesitant about moving away from a religious worldview is because they're worried that they'll lose their moral foundations and their moral moorings and what is good, what is bad, what is right, and what is wrong. But you don't share that sort of supernatural or religious worldview anymore. So, how would you describe? what the grounding of your ethics is. If indeed it does have a grounding, how would you describe what matters to you?
1: I I mean, I I do think it's possibly more complicated than the fact that I'm not religious because I did grow up, right, in a Christian environment and setting which might have shaped the way I I view the world. But that said, I don't think our ethics and our morals are grounded there. Uh, I think there is enough evidence of people shirking what their religions ask of them to do and choosing something because they view whatever it's asking them to do, whether it's stoning people for being a particular sexuality or not letting their wives sleep in their rooms or whatever it is. Those are really extreme examples. but
0: Yeah, most, most religious people are much more moral than the religion yeah, they follow.
1: <laughs> exactly. Like uh, people will go beyond. And we do this with a variety of of things, right? Not just religion. We make judgment calls on a day-to-day basis, about how best we think we could be in the world. And I think we're all dealing with these tensions. We're presented with moral quandaries on a daily basis. And I think how we navigate those and the tools we use to navigate those are varied. So for some people, you might be presented with a, a moral problem, and your religion helps you get out of that problem. It gives you maybe a simple way to exit that problem. Mm. For uh, you might have exactly the same person presented with a different moral problem. And in that instance, their religion doesn't give them the way out, but uh, a course that they recently did on philosophy helps them to think through it. So I view all of these as different tools for thinking through moral problems. Differently, philosophy, where, where one views itself as a critical, like, is the only answer, I don't think that there is one way of finding your way out of a moral quandary. And that's what makes it a moral quandary, right? Because the answer is not simple. And as an individual in a social setting, you are going to pull on different tools in different ways in different instances. But for me, a guiding principle uh, currently, and it hasn't always been, I think my social world and who I'm around do shape how I I think we can't disavow how important social settings and social networks are in helping us decide what is right and what is wrong. A social norm is a really powerful dictator, sometimes compelling you to go against what you actually think is right and wrong. Yeah. But for myself, increasingly, it's a question of responsibility and of locatedness. So one recognizing that I'm part of an entangled, messy web of relations that stretch beyond my home into the country I live in, into countries that live far beyond me, right? The meal on my plate represents not only where I am now, but also potentially countries that are across oceans, plants that have come from different spaces. uh, And I need to be cognizant of that. So one, recognizing that I'm in an embedded world, Uh, full of entangled relations, and two, taking responsibility for that. Uh, And I think that responsibility is two-tiered as well. There's an individual responsibility. There's recognizing that the choices I make on a day-to-day basis matter. Whether it's choosing not to eat an animal today, that's an individual choice that matters. And I think that we really need to realize that individual choices do matter. But at the same time putting them in context of larger institutional responsibility as well, that one individual should not say I have no power because governments and institutions, they determine everything. You do have a power in your day-to-day life, but also recognizing that these bigger institutions that drive a lot of trade and a lot of happenings and dictate a lot of our entanglements should also be held to account. And
0: ultimately those institutions are... made up of and driven by individuals we're yeah. not just consumers we can also be voters and stand for office and be managers and leaders and employees and shareholders and stakeholders and, stakeholders and letter exactly. writers and yeah
1: but i just think that when saying what matters you need to recognize that there are two there that that we are embedded and that there are two scales of responsibility yeah. to not disavow how much responsibility you can have as an individual because the problem seems so big but also to not just locate the problems at the individual level to say and see that there is a responsibility that we should expect from governments and from bigger institutions. So that's where I locate my ethics and morals is like, where do I fit? And how do I cause the least amount of harm in the decision I'm about to make? Uh, And it's not always perfect, right? Like, you make mistakes all the time. Um, And
0: you... I'm very sympathetic to, in the same as we spend a lot of time talking about epistemological uncertainty because mm. the universe is a very brain-bendingly complex place. You also hint at a moral uncertainty as well. What, what is the right moral system? Is it deontology or some set of rules or virtues or consequentialism? Or And I'm very sympathetic to that sort of moral uncertainty about that maybe there is no perfect way of
1: yeah.
0: working this stuff out. And that's partly why the idea of sentientism it deliberately stays neutral on all that stuff and says look there's mm-hmm. loads of different moral systems i'm uncertain about which is the right one but one thing that i think that can cut through a lot of those moral systems is your moral considerability some people will call it a moral circle or so when you think about all of the different entities in the world around us which of those matter and you, you used an important what i think is an important word of harm mm-hmm. there, which i think is, is central because whatever your moral system is at the root of it is something about causing harm or benefiting other entities. And that's quite an interesting journey for some people Yeah. about, you know, how does their moral circle develop over time, if it even is a circle. And, and it would be interesting to know how you've gone through that journey. Did you, you know, start out with a very broad moral circle? as it shifted? Mm-hmm. Did you thought about humanity as a whole? At what point did you start taking non-human animals seriously as, yeah. you know, objects of ethical consideration? Yes.
1: Before I answer that, I do want to just say, same as how with the epistemological question, I pointed to concerns on both ends. I want to point to concerns on both ends with the moral consideration too. That when contending with a moral dilemma, yes, there are many ways to look at and consider answers to what could be the best way forward here. But I don't want to necessarily encourage throwing up of hands in all situations either, because I do think sometimes people are presented with a way in which they could do They could do better. We could all do better. But then you're given these generalist answers of everyone's doing the best they can, or don't I can't think of good examples now, but where potentially where folks are not necessarily taking responsibility, where it is just this is an individual choice or this is a Mm -hmm. that there are ways of trying to not look at how you are embedded, to try and just suspend that embeddedness and not take responsibility. And I'm I'm not in saying that there are varied ways of contending with and really grappling. And when I say grapple, like sitting with and being with that discomfort and thinking, okay, this is a shitty and hard decision. And sometimes it's not that shitty and hard. Sometimes what is a better way forward is quite plain and obvious. I think you need to be compassionate that people are dealing with this in their own ways and in their own timelines. I'm not, yeah. but at the same time, I do think. So I am vegan now. And in the beginning of that vegan journey, I was very like, yeah, everyone, you do you. It's your choice. And I found that people were often quite uh, confessional. As soon as they would find out that you're vegan, like as soon as people were doing something, they'd be like, oh, I'm definitely cutting down on meat. or "I'm," And they would tell yeah. you these things. And I would often give, which I, I don't think is necessarily wrong. It's, yeah, okay, that's great. Because I think just by virtue of being in conversation with this person, I'm being subversive. They are currently contending with their own... Choices, which is great. But at They're the same engaging time, with the topic at
0: least. exactly.
1: Yeah. But at the same time, I do think that they might be seeking some catharsis from me saying, Oh, that's fine. Everything you're doing is fine. We're all on our own journeys. Yeah. Um, I'm just increasingly wary of those open-ended answers. I'd much rather be direct about what the what the implications are of those choices. Not in a, I'm not trying to belittle anyone or but just being so sorry, I, like I'm going to come to your answer now, but I just wanted to put that caveat in there too, yeah. that as much as there are varied ways to contend with a moral decision, I, I do think that sometimes we we use that variance of option as a, as a get-out-of-jail-free card to not really contend with the, how difficult those choices are. Yeah. And yeah, in terms of moral consideration and circles, I, I definitely know that there's some contention around circles and expanding circles. And same as how I view decisions based on the social setting. I think that this is also based on social settings. But for me, animals were not always part of it. Being a vegan, I've been a vegan now for about four years, maybe five now. And even being a vegetarian wasn't even on my radar. It wasn't something I thought about. And this is just now in hindsight, I'm like, how did I not see it? But it just wasn't it, it just didn't register. It wasn't. It, it was a non-starter. It was a non-factor. I just didn't think that feathers in my jacket actually came from an animal. They were just feathers in my jacket. I didn't think that what was on my plate. I would speak about it as being a cow or a chicken, but there wasn't really a connection that this was yeah. being that once had a life and and died yeah. exactly. So there, there was no. No connection there, and obviously I'd seen all these horrible videos of what goes on in factory farms, but somehow I'd managed to disavow that that's not what's going on with my meat, right? That's not real. That's like an extreme example. And then I would continue with my day. It really didn't—it didn't impact me. But I do yeah. think that over time, I think subversion is a really powerful word because I like to view any worldview as a—imagine a vase, like a perfectly crafted vase, and you've got this. You've got this idea and it's perfect, but every conversation and every little video chips that vase. There's a little crack that happens in this idea and you might not see it. It's a small little blemish and you can't see it. But over time, as these small subversive hits hit your very solid idea, eventually there's going to be a moment when that idea cracks. Mm-hmm. And that happened for me. My, my husband was now starting to, he had gotten into a Facebook argument with someone about veganism. Who had in essence said that you can't call yourself an animal lover and eat meat, which I still I still say is wrong. I think that we are more complicated and we tend to contradict ourselves constantly. That I do think you can do both of those things, like we're just contradictory beings. But this led him down a path of just trying to figure things out. And I was passively listening to videos he was listening to in the background. And some person who I don't know said, "Listen, if you want to eat factory farmed animals, go ahead, do it. But if you're going to eat them," Just know and acknowledge that who you are eating on the plate has gone through that system. It was a very straightforward, simple, and that was the thing that broke my vase. That was the moment where I had an internal jolt of, shit, I'm part of this. And whether I like it or not, I now have a decision as to whether or not I live in line with my views. I can talk about how much I I love things and I can talk about how much I care about the planet. Um, And honestly, the environmental ethics weren't even part of the picture. This was purely an animal ethics decision. And uh, we took an eight-month journey. We were quite scared. There's a lot of talk out there about how being vegan is unhealthy. And I'm happy to say that we cycled 6,000 kilometers across Central Asia on a vegan diet. We went through China. We went through Mongolia on a bicycle. We managed to – I think there were some mistakes where people possibly gave us things and we weren't too sure what was going on. But the vast majority, we ate vegetables and there are some of the best vegetables in the world in China. I can tell you now that the leaf selection and the mushroom selection are just yeah. out of this world. <laughs> and yeah, we're healthy and we're, we're happy. And we, yeah. And then obviously after we made an eight month deadline, we worked towards it. We figured out recipes. We went for blood tests. We were like, okay, like the vegan thing, we're going to die. But still, <laughs> it's important to do. And no, we ended up being the healthiest we've uh, ever been. And then slowly, the environmental ethics started to come into play as well. That this isn't just a decision about animals, but how these industries are killing the planet. Where does the cow poop go? Yeah. Where? Yeah. Anyway, sorry, I'm rattling on. But yeah, no, it's but... it not circles, complicated entanglements.
0: Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the circle is um, it's a simple concept, and I think it's useful in that sense. But it implies concentric expansion it implies mm. that certain things are in the center or are prioritized in certain different ways so yeah. i think when you dig into it maybe it's not you know as accurate as it should be and, and the reality is much more messy sure um, and think- also
1: recog- sorry and also recognizing that animals are they're not a monolithic category either yeah. so how we consider some animals and our social relations with them is very different like how do we consider our social relations with the cow or a lion and what what are the responsibilities and uh, the contours of our relationship
0: yeah and I think what you were talking about with the variety of moral approaches and that moral uncertainty again it echoes in a way what we're talking about with the epistemology because your one mistake is to think you have the perfect moral system and the other mistake I think is to give up completely and there are I think that's one of the dangers of some of the people who like the postmodernist approach can end up being drawn into a sort of moral relativism mm-hmm. that almost abandoned to my mind is just abandoning morality completely because it's saying, who are we to judge? It's their culture. They've negotiated this moral system in in a different way from mine. And, and I think we should respect that, right? Because people will come to different perspectives, but if that moral system includes stoning people for adultery or throwing gay people off roofs or telling small children that they're going to burn in hell forever, if they don't pray enough mm-hmm. for me, I am comfortable condemning those, not because the moral system is different, but because of the harm they're causing. And so in a way, I'm very open-minded about different moral systems, but the root of all of them has to be a moral concern for the suffering, the life, the death, the flourishing of sentient beings. And that's the grounding for me. And Mm -hmm. then we can argue about rules or different systems on top of that. But the idea of being so relativistic and so uncertain about morality that you allow and refuse to condemn moral systems that directly and very clearly and inc- incontrovertibly oppress and harm sentient beings, that's where I, I call a yeah. halt there. And I say, look, I'm very comfortable explaining those harms, saying they're needless, and saying that that's not a good moral system. There are some moral systems that are immoral in my in my view. Mm.
1: Yeah, it's something that I've, because I do think that we need to respect different cultures and yeah. different ways of doing Absolutely. things. Um, and for a long time, I was thinking, before I called myself a feminist, this for me was also like a dirty word, right? What is a feminist? And I came from a setting where things were quite conservative and there was now concern that I was, so my first master's was a gender studies degree. And yeah. it was purely because I didn't understand what the concept of gender meant. So I was like, okay, I'm going to get a degree in this. <laughs> and I'm still- How many
0: degrees do you have now?
1: I think this is my fifth now. Is it gen- <laughs> Yeah, yeah, this will be my 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 fifth. And that sounds obnoxious, but it's just, it's how I stay disciplined with learning stuff. Other people are really good at just falling down like YouTube channels and being disciplined that way. I'm not, unfortunately, um, that way inclined. But, yeah, then I realized, so eventually I came around and I was like, okay, you know, feminists believe that there are different ways to do feminism and different ways to believe you are a feminist and to contend with patriarchal structures. But overall, the the common tenant is that women should have, and a variety of genders should have moral consideration and should be yeah. viewed as people and persons and have access to rights. And then I realized, but feminism, I realized at some point I was like, okay, is this also just relativism? Is this leaning towards just respecting all cultures, no matter how they deal with or believe women should behave? And then I was like, no, because feminism at its core is critical, saying that something is broken and yeah. we need to contend with that. And I think it's yeah. the same thing with veganism.
0: I agree. And I think that's one of the things I find frustrating is that there are some people who will call themselves feminist who are won't call out, for example, the system of guardianship in Saudi Arabia because they're nervous about criticizing another culture. Whereas to my mind, no, those women are being constrained and imprisoned mm. and Don't be shy about calling that out. We should respect other cultures and other ways of thinking. But when the harm is clear and uncontrovertible, whether it's to to whoever it is, let's not abandon those people because of being too sensitive about different cultures.
1: I do think, though, that to some extent that's also easier said than done. Because as much as you might have one system of oppression that's working to diminish women in some ways, you've got racist systems that are operating as well and people utilising... And I think that this is where the real difficulty lies is that all of these different things, racism, sexism, speciesism, speciesism, yeah. they're interlocked and they're also shaping one another, right? Like how yeah. racism operates is channeled and shaped by how sexism operates and is also channeled and shaped by how, spe- I can't say speciesism properly, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, and it is easy to see how some people that might be taking a hard line on how women are treated in Saudi Arabia are also using racist discourses to do that. And now, and add to that the current context in which speaking your mind online can get you fired or can get you having serious backlash on social media. Add that kind of fear of being wrong i had that kind of fear of being you know and unfortunately that kind of fear is not associated at all that kind of with with eating animals not yet at least but i think that there is something to contend with about that kind of toxic backlash yeah
0: Yeah. i totally agree and is and i think that's a really important concern is that for some people they'll use challenging real oppression as a way of doing their own form of oppression as you say Mm. um and that's clearly an issue and you can see that i think to some degree in that there are Interestingly, some atheist and humanistic organizations who will campaign against some religious forms of animal slaughter Mm -hmm. without making any statement about factory farming. And you're like, you know, you're resisting a form of religious privilege and dressing it up as though you're trying to help the welfare of those animals. But actually, you don't have any concern for the welfare of all of the other factory farmed animals outside of those systems. So maybe Mm -hmm. your motivation is actually about challenging those religious privileges rather than... Sure. And, and, and I think, so So I think, again, that's one mistake. If we allow people to challenge an oppression using an oppressive lens, that's a problem. But there's also a problem where we say, because this group are oppressed under some circumstances, we're going to allow them without challenge to continue to oppress yeah. people or beings within their own society. And then we abandon them because the group as a whole seems oppressed. There are even more oppressed people within that society. So I th- and I think in a way that brings me back to a sort of safety mechanism or a, a stop check, which is as you did when you listened to the individual say you think about who that was on your plate. If you go back to the individual sentient being, human or non-human, and you think about their perspective, to my mind, that's the like the safety mechanism here. So as long as that's your primary unit of moral consideration and concern, you're concerned about that woman or that man or that pig or that chicken yeah. and their perspective hopefully that provides a sort of safety mechanism. And and being oppressed yourself is not an excuse for oppressing others. And um, I think we can find a balanced way of...
1: I think we can. And I think... So, I mean, it's definitely complicated and complex. So let's say you speak to someone who is within a system that you view as being morally reprehensible. Mm -hmm. And you start with that individual and you say, what do you think? And they respond saying, this is the way it should be. And this is where the questions of relativism come in and are problematic because you could have someone at the individual level who is saying, yes, this is right. This is the way it should be. And you, as someone who is not from our country, not from our culture, why do you get a say on what we're doing? And a whole bunch of historical baggage comes into asking that question as well. So yes, I think coming to the individual, but also contending with that difficulty, messy thing that you might not agree with this individual and finding the reasons for why that is without without diminutizing where their views come from, I think. Yes. Yeah. And my, I think the route forward or the way forward should be embracing complexity and nuance. And I think, again, this comes to how media currently operates, how we tend to speak of our problems as being categorical. It's this or it's that it's right or it's wrong. Yeah. Um, and i think to to bring in that nuance and complexity is not to necessarily embrace relativism uh, i think there are some lines in the sand and there are some things that you as an individual need to draw and you need and as a society right because we are individuals that exist within specific social groups what does my social group think and what are we willing to protect and and we need to think through why we are willing to protect that and to what end because we are not we're not free floating individuals we exist within structures yeah. and systems but we have to be willing to be Complicated and nuanced, and recognize that we might not have uh, that humility you were speaking about earlier. And because it is one, and you should definitely be speaking to the people with whom you, whose oppression you are concerned with. Their voices yes. should be there, and what they are saying should be listened to. But you also need to prepare yourself that you might encounter a situation where you might not agree with that person. And what does that mean? What are the implications of that? I don't have the answers. I'm in the job of just setting up a whole bunch of difficult questions. But yeah, yeah, it's certainly good to think through.
0: I agree. I think it's partly acknowledging that complexity and that richness and the distinctiveness of different people's perspectives and have humility about your ability to even understand that perspective. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also engaging with compassion, even with people you disagree with deeply. And that doesn't mean you have to be weak or you have to appease people who are causing harm, but you still... And that's the challenge. It's easy to be compassionate to people you agree with, but being compassionate with people and others you fundamentally disagree with, I think is important because without that, it's quite hard to have the humility. Yeah. And it's quite hard to really d- deepen your own understanding if you've condemned before you listen and learn. I agree. Because the way, way I'd like to finish these conversations is, is to really think about the future. And I try and set a slightly optimistic cast, but some of my guests don't, mm-hmm. don't want, want me to do that. So you can take it wherever you like. But I guess the question I'm asking is, if we imagine a situation where more people you and I don't agree on everything we'll have different perspectives Mm -hmm. but where more people roughly agree with us that we should have a broader moral circle that includes certainly all sentient beings and that we should have a a broad naturalistic high humility way of understanding reality if we could switch a button and have more people think that way Mm. what do you think that future might look like and you can choose your own time frame and how do you think we might be able to get there?
1: Gosh, I, I really wish I'd given this a uh, spot more thought before because I think it's it's a brilliant question. And I think, so something I heard, I think it was Dinesh Wadi say in a lecture, uh, and I think that's really important about the present and its connectedness to the future is that yeah. oftentimes people will view vegans as killjoys and stuff. But I think that we are actively engaged in trying to imagine a future that operates differently. We don't know what that future looks like necessarily, but we are trying to figure out that future through our everyday decisions. So I think that no matter what future yeah. the listeners have envisioned uh, for us and animals, I think that placing some weight on what your choices are today and and how that could shape whatever beautiful future you have in mind, I think that's really a significant thing. But for the future, I imagine I imagine cities i think that our our world is increasingly urbanized and i think it's going to continue in that way but i imagine cities that are more embracing of animals and of the variety of natural more of the natural world the cities are natural spaces and they are ecologies and i view them as increasingly less resistance to that fact, Uh, maybe embracing plants that grow up on the sides of buildings more, creating highways that stretch from building to building for squirrels to navigate on, embracing the hawks that are are there as well, Uh, figuring out different architecture that leads to the space being more friendly to animals, and figuring out how this will happen in a way that is also tied to food systems that are less oppressive, so more diverse, more diverse ways of farming, a vertical farming that is embracing seed dispersion and moving away from monocrop, mono which I do acknowledge that to some extent it is necessary to feed the size of our populations. But yeah, yeah I envision more dynamic urban spaces where humans are not so separated from animals and where we are not so violent against animals who intersect our spaces, whether it's a raccoon opening your your dustbin or a rat that sneaks in because it wants to get warm, that there is a different solution to killing them. Uh, I imagine a world where killing isn't the first answer, where there are more creative, beautiful ways of thinking about how we can deal with these problems because they are messy and they are sometimes inconvenient, but We have figured it out with ourselves, and it's not always perfect. So I imagine a world where it will be imperfect, but it will be more thoughtful for what those squirrels, raccoons, rats, uh, hawks, what they need in those spaces, and how leaving some spaces alone might also be best for other animals. Maybe imagining different nations. Yeah, I I think the work of Will Will Kimlick and Sue Donaldson, uh, I recently interviewed her on the Animal Turn as well, and she speaks about like political multispecies communities, and I really do think imagining a world in which they're taken seriously as uh, beings, uh, not as property, and I think that for me would be a really beautiful world. Hmm.
0: Thank you. That's an inspiring vision, and I love those simple thought experiments of just taking concepts we think of as quite normal for humans, whether it's rights, liberalism, democracy, freedom, autonomy, and just extending. The remit of those to other sentient non-human mm. animals, and why not? It won't be trivial. Won't be easy. Might yeah. be messy. But yeah, it's an inspiring, inspiring vision to lay out.
1: Yeah, it's definitely great to think through. I, I think I'm, I might push back on them being simple. <laughs> I think there are some people that maybe <laughs> don't think the rights model is the best way forward. Yeah, yeah. But why not at least think through, it? carve out a space where it's a possibility? The idea that they shouldn't have—I don't know access to healthcare or access to elderly care or retirement packages for animals that have worked their whole lives for us Um, and for themselves. Yeah. Let's start embracing these difficult to understand, but really potentially enriching for our world and theirs. I think we deserve it to They deserve this kind of consideration. Animals we've been in relationships with for thousands and thousands of years. It's time. It's time we consider how we impact their worlds and the responsibility we should take and the actual ways in which we can make the world better and take more responsibility for our embeddedness in it.
0: Thank you. An inspiring (laughs) vision. So before we wrap up, what's the easiest way for people to follow you and subscribe to The Animal Turn? I can include links in the show notes, of course.
1: Yeah, if you could, I should be better at just like rattling these off. (laughs) Uh, So both myself and the podcast are on Twitter. So the podcast is The Animal Turn and I'm Claudia F. Town. So Twitter, I'm new to it and I'm getting into that. (laughs) Thank you. And the Animal Turn is, you can find it on any podcasting network. I will be releasing a website for it early next year. I'm still busy building all of that. But if you could give it a listen and potentially a review, that would be really great. But yeah, it's building, it's working. We're currently finishing off a season on animals and experience. I've got two more interviews. Actually, we released an episode today with Jonathan Balcom. I keep saying we, like it's a solo show, but it is, yeah. I feel like it's a whole community. Um, it's like a you know,
0: royal we, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. But no, it is, I mean, there are sponsors and there are folks that have helped me with music and stuff, so it is a we. But yeah, I released an episode with Jonathan Belcom today, speaking about Fish or fishes' experiences and yeah, really-
0: book is amazing, yeah.
1: Oh, he's wonderful. One of the best parts, as I'm sure you're getting to realize, of podcasting is that you get to carve out an hour of someone's life and someone like Jonathan Belcom or- Sue Donaldson, and, and you get to have an hour of their attention and just pick their brains, which is... Or
0: Claudia Hertenfeld. Uh,
1: yeah, one day. Thank you. Thank you for including me. I saw in your I saw in your sentence, uh, saw your your podcast description, you're like, speak to experts and animal rights activists and lay people like myself. I was like, yes, <laughs> lay people like myself. But thank you for with letting me... A lay me...
0: person with only five degrees,
1: yes. Yeah, yeah. No, no. That sounds obnoxious. It's, it's legitimately, it's a compulsion. Don't look at it as a good thing. <laughs>
0: It's been a genuine pleasure to talk to you today, and I, I can't recommend The Animal Turn highly enough. Don't just subscribe to it, but um, make sure you listen to all the back episodes, because you've had some fascinating conversations. So,
1: Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Jonathan, for the support, and uh, you were one of the first people to reach out to me on Twitter and actually extend an arm and uh, speak to me about the podcast itself, mine and yours. So uh, thank you, and, and I look forward to listening to more of your episodes here as well.
0: Thank you. I will see you on Twitter, and it's great to have you on our Facebook group too. So. Cool. I'll let you go. get on with the rest of your day. Thank you for spending so much time with me. Take care. Cheers. You too. Thanks for listening. You're helping to normalize rational, compassionate thinking. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us some stars or a review. You can visit sentientism.info to find out more and you'd be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?